Hi, everyone. From Impact Alpha Media, this is Returns on Investment, a show about the impact investing marketplace. Live on tape from New York, I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company LiquidNet. With me here, as always, is Imogen Rose-Smith, a senior writer with Institutional Investor Magazine. Hello, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And joining us by the magic of podcast technology is Impact Alpha's editor-in-chief, David Bank. He joins us from the Bay Area. Hi, David. Hi, Brian. Hi, Imogen. Good to be with you. Good to be with you, too. Imogen, did you want to say something? No. Is it good to be with David? It is good to be with David. Okay. It's, I'm going to actually one-up it. It's, it's great to be with you both. How about that? On today's show, we're going to talk about risk. No, not the game of global domination played by people who can barely run their own lives, but risk when it comes to how companies operate, how investors allocate capital, and how our overall economic system survives. David, why is the impact community talking more about risk? Well, I think there's an interesting shift going on. You know, people talk about risk-adjusted returns. The risk part of that has has, som- has sometimes gotten less uh, attention than, than the returns part. And in fact, it's more than just the risk or the returns on that investment. Impact investing is taking on issues that are increasingly seen as representing kind of systemic risks. And therefore, if you can address them uh, with social enterprises, with social innovation, with new kinds of approaches, you can be reducing these systemic risks and there's value in that risk reduction. So it's basically another way of framing up the value of investments in water resources, in food security, in you know climate risk reduction. And so if impact investments get to be seen as risk reducing, then it takes a little bit of the burden off of whether they're going to hit home runs on the return side. So Imogen, why does the impact community have a credibility issue when it comes to risk? Well, because historically they're terrible at it, right? So, um, and obviously there are exceptions to this rule, but historically impact investors and if you sort of go back in time even particularly to sort of socially socially responsible investing and investments that were really driven by mission and ideologies and often screening these were not investment practices that put a lot of onuses on risk management it was about investing with a specific ideological framework and the sort of the traditional investing investment community looked at these strategies and was like, what you guys are doing has nothing to do with finance. And by taking, quote unquote, taking ideas off the table because of ideological perceptions, you are actually sort of undermining your own skill set. And that in turn bleeds over into risk management, particularly when you're investing with companies and people and ideas because you like what they're doing instead of sort of having an analysis, both of the risk and also the pricing, right? That people had a reputation for sort of staying in companies when they were overvalued and not protecting the downside risk. So that's sort of the the big picture reason why from the investment community that sort of socially responsible strategies, which they would include impact in, has a reputation for not being good at risk. For impact specifically, you know, impact investing comes from a very sort of narrow, very illiquid, esoteric investment approach that even sort of with the best will in the world, even being good at it, it's going to be a challenge on a risk management standpoint. So if you're making a ton of loans to, you know, small farmers in Africa, that likely is going to be a risky enterprise. In addition to which a lot of the asset managers that were overseeing these strategies 
weren't necessarily putting a lot of focus on the risk management side of this, in part because they didn't necessarily have to because of who was sort of sponsoring these endeavors. So they haven't traditionally been known for being good risk managers, and often they haven't had the teams and the expertise and the people in place who indeed know anything about risk. So David, are impact investors becoming better marketers talking about their risk, or are they have they changed their behaviors and changed their practices uh, to be better at risk management? Well, we, we're, there's a little bit of apples and oranges problems here because we're talking about both the risk of a particular enterprise, and then we're talking about things like like corporate risk management. And may, maybe that's a place where we can kind of try to find some common ground here. So if you think of if you're a corporate risk manager and you're looking at your supply chain and you're looking at where you're getting both your, say, your food supplies from um, and you need to understand whether those food supplies are going to be affected by droughts or floods or other climate related risks. Or perhaps you're looking at your um, your contract manufacturing and your uh, factories in in China or Bangladesh, and you want to understand whether there's maybe like headline risk if that factory burns down as as a garment factory in, in, in Bangladesh did several years ago, and you want to make sure that you're guarded against those kind of reputational risks. So in those cases, you might think, okay, well, I want to, you know, obviously, you know, avoid those risks, but you might also think, well, maybe there's a sort of social enterprise uh, approach that could be a corporate risk reduction strategy while being a uh, possibly profitable, but possibly, you know, just maybe marginal uh, venture investment, right? So I could invest in that co-op that's helping those farmers improve the sustainability and resilience of their agricultural techniques. And that's going to make sure that my healthy milk supply for my, say, you know, chocolate factory is going to be more secure, um, it's going to make sure that the water resources are available for my bottling plant. It's going to make sure that my that the human rights uh, and labor practices are good in my um, contract garment manufacturing plant. And so um, there's ways in which the venture itself kind of at some level, I mean, not never separate from the bona fides of that particular investment, but that the investment impetus is about corporate risk reduction, not about making a killing in that investment. I do agree with you to the extent that I think you are seeing more opportunities for social venture as it intersects with corporations. So, for example, in water, right, that corporations are going out and trying to find entrepreneurs who are coming up with ways that they can like improve their water usage so that you know that they're using less water i think those opportunities really exist where i don't see the connection happening is then further down sort of the, the food chain on the investor side so investors for the most part aren't recognizing hey this corporation over here that's doing a great job of reducing its improving labor conditions in Bangladesh, we think that corporation is outperforming. Investors aren't good at making those kind of connections. The capital markets have yet to value those kind of initiatives, even as the corporate world is talking about them more. So you'll hear a lot of complaints, for example, that you know, corporations that have sort of socially responsible people have done a lot of work in this space, as soon as they get on analyst calls, the analysts couldn't care less. 
Like they have very, very little interest in those types of issues because they don't fit into sort of economic models that Wall Street has. So I think a lot of that value is not being recognized by the investment community. Where I think there is some intersection is on the sort of macro level, right? So, you know, we've talked about this a lot, the sustainable development goals. When you're talking about issues like climate change, when you're talking about, again, sort of resources and food and agriculture and these kind of macro trends where some of the more progressive investors in particular can be like, okay, yes, we see that there is, there are, there are threats and opportunities there. How do we tackle them? So Imogen, I think you hit on something there. Uh, the flip side of risk is opportunity. And so David, how do you see more impact investors looking at uh, the, this this opportunity set that they that they see in managing risk and looking at the flip side of risk as uh, opportunities for value creation. Well, Imogen mentioned the sustainable development goals. We've been doing a lot of talking with pension funds, particularly in Europe, that have adopted the sustainable development goals as a way to align their investments. There was just an announcement from a big Dutch pension fund. I think it represents um, engineering and electrical workers called SME, and they allocated 10% of their uh, something like $50 billion of assets um, towards the sustainable development goal. And the reason was, they said, and the, the, the chairman of the, of the fund said, investments can produce satisfactory long-term returns only if society develops in a balanced way. So one big macro risk is, you know, increasing economic inequality, slow global growth, that if there's not a sort of sustainable, inclusive prosperity that, you know, none of, you know, that your investments as a whole, especially if you're a big kind of so-called universal owner, you know, those investments are not going to be sustainable in the long term. So I think there's an increasing appreciation of the broad systemic risks and how that affects certainly these big investment portfolios. Um, and then I think by extension, also big, you know, big sort of multinational corporate um, operations. I do agree with Imogen's point about the, you know, whether investors value it. It came up, I think, very clearly when Unilever very briefly was going to be the subject of a of a takeover battle. And Unilever, of course, is everybody's, you know, sustainability darling. And it appeared that, you know, that was fine until you miss one quarter earnings and then the and then the vulture swoops swoops in. Um, and the question was, you know, did investors actually care at all about uh, Unilever's good reputation and, and I think probably good practices on sustainability issues? I am a little skeptical of these sort of grandiose pledges to commit capital to the sustainable development goals. I mean, I think that the intention is very good and important. We have, I have yet to see as much evidence, let's say, as I would like of real investments being made. You know, I think it's easy and you see this all the time, right? I mean, it's easy for like the CIO or whoever to say, we pledge x percent of our assets to tackle climate change or whatever it is and then what that means on sort of like the ground level and sort of the portfolio level and money actually getting allocated can often be very different and also you know the time it depends on the time horizon right so saying you're going to commit this capital over the next 10 years when we know that the time frame for tackling some of these issues is much shorter than that is a little problematic and i do actually think that some of this feeds back into the risk conversation because while I think it's important to think about these investments in terms of risk, 
I think it's easy, particularly for large asset owners, to get caught up in the risk conversation at the expense of capital allocation conversations, right? So we think about climate change as a risk and what should we do? We do be doing about it from a risk management standpoint. Are our managers doing enough? Instead of saying, how do we ensure that we're investing in green energy opportunities? And it sort of becomes siloed into a conversation that doesn't result in as much committed capital as it might otherwise do. I think you're absolutely right. But I think that's why, in some sense, the corporate risk management discussion is maybe easier to get your get our hands around because, you know, there it's about literally, you know, very operational issues, not about sort of aspirational or directional issues for your investment portfolio, but literally about, you know, where's your water coming from? Where's your food supply coming from? What are your climate risks? And there, you know, you may find that the ri the thing that is a risk to your business actually becomes an opportunity. You know, there's some examples of, say, Lockheed Martin, which people think of as an aerospace company. But when the Defense Department, um, you know, and even I think the current Defense Department said, you know, climate change is a strategic risk, you know, they put their engineers and their scientists on on climate change and developed a whole department, a whole a whole unit um, that has a bunch of uh, of interesting climate change solutions. So turning a risk into an opportunity obviously is a is a is a tried and true uh, a tried and true strategy. Okay, David, I want to actually want to flip this question around risk around because so far we in this conversation we've been talking about essentially financial risk and mitigating uh, the the potential downside for an investment not paying off uh, by having. Uh, a, a whole risk mitigation strategy. Uh, what about the the risk from an impact investor's perspective? What about the not the financial risk, but the the impact risk? So what what about the risk of an investment not having the intended social or environmental impact that an investor seeks? And how how do investors think about mitigating the the downside potential social or environmental risk? I think that's a huge challenge, right? And it's this is one of the one of the things that makes impact investing in some ways exponentially harder than traditional investing if you're going to do it well, right? That you're now no longer just talking about one vertical, i.e. financial returns. You're now talking about multiple vert verticals in terms of what your impact is. And as we all know very well, measuring your impact is an incredibly challenging thing to do. And it's something that the impact investments community spends endless hours talking about and struggling with. So you have, you know, you have various verticals to this. One, what is your impact? How do you measure that, you know, you or your manager are helping all the communities in India that you said you were helping? Two, what is the consequences of your impact? Are you actually, you know, is it good enough to say, okay, we're getting clean water to this many communities. Do you then have to take the step further and say, what are they, what are they doing with that water? Like, how do you ensure that you are actually having the, the positive effect that you want to have and how do you measure it? And those, those are very, very challenging issues. Um, but do, do you think that ultimate asset owners or stewards care or are they just looking for some metric, some sense, some attempt? I think it like, very much depends on the investor, right? Like, if you have investors that, you know, sort of, that are leading with impact first, then those are the types of investors that spend a huge amount of time focused on these kinds of questions. 
if you're talking about your large institutional asset owners, they don't necessarily, they're not going to necessarily get into the weeds of how, what is the sort of minutiae impact of these investments. What they do care a huge amount about is stuff like carbon emissions, hmm. right? And are you actually sort of on that higher level having the impact that you claim you're going to have? Otherwise, there's no point in them investing. David, from from your sense, like what what's your read on the impact investing market and the impact investors, the both the fund managers and the asset owners and the asset stewards that you speak with, where do they put a focus as far as trying to manage the potential of the impact not happening that they intend to happen? Well, there's the impact not happening because of you know execution issues and stuff. At some level, that's the that's the simple case. The complex case is the unintended consequences. If you get into you know, privatized water markets, right? Everybody thinks, well, water is mispriced and therefore it's wasted and therefore it's not, um, there's not the ability to sort of manage it in a rational way to and, and sort out the interest of, of the various users. But privatized water markets have all kinds of unintended consequences from people, you know, water supplies shut off to other people's water supplies, you know, uh, taken away for other users. You know, there's unintended consequences across the across the landscape, um, and so it's not just that the execution didn't work out and that it, that venture didn't didn't really deliver. It's maybe that you know the whole conception is misguided and in fact you know causes more harm than good. So I think people are going to be very wary of those things because then they've set themselves up as impact investors, and in fact maybe you know in the end, uh, in some cases, they'll end up having negative impact. But this is, again, I think this is a great example of how larger institutional asset owners can get frustrated by the whole impact debate, right? Because I think it's important that economic and financial risk be, on the one hand, I think it's important that economic and financial risk be elevated to the level of being seriously important to any of these investments. If we're going to call these things impact investments, then sort of the investment expertise needs to be at a best-in-class level. On the other hand, you know, I think that there is a frustration that the sort of the impact part of this conversation is still being fleshed out, right? You sort of institutional investors would kind of be like, well, we thought you guys had got that part under control. And the recognition that, no, that is also a challenge in and of itself sort of increases the sort of levels of comfort that investors have to get in order to really start committing capital to these types of strategies, which is problematic, again, because we don't have a five, 10 year time horizon for these problems to sort themselves out. Brian, you've got an impact, you've got an impact fund with about half a dozen or more investments. How do you think about risk? Well, uh, David, as as Impact Alpha is uh, one of those uh, uh, the the largest portfolio companies in our in the Liquid Impact Fund, uh, I think we, we think about it uh, pretty significantly. Uh, what, what, <laughs> what is what is the risk of uh, this company turning into uh, you know a, a media behemoth, and what is the the risk of it uh, maybe selling its soul and uh, becoming a ruthless uh, company that doesn't care about impact anymore? We are anchored to, to our mission by um, uh, a, a set of uh, 
principles actually we've written into the bylaws, which effectively are uh, uh, that we are an impact uh, media company and we have no reason for being other than our social impact um, and our returns to our investors like you. And, and, and now it's, it's, it's all in the name too, it's embedded in the name Impact Alpha. So that's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. Thank you, Imogen. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you, guys. Good to talk to you both. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, you can leave us a rating and a comment. It helps other people discover the show. For more on the Impact Investing Marketplace, follow Impact Alpha on Twitter at Impact Alpha. Check out the website, impactalpha.com. There you can sign up for the newsletter. David, what's the newsletter called? The newsletter is called The Brief, and you can sign up for it at impactalpha.com slash The Brief. And that's a daily newsletter keeping you informed on everything happening in the impact investing marketplace. You can feed, uh, send feedback or comments by email at info at impactalpha.com. Special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. Thanks, Isaac. In New York, I'm Brian Walsh. On behalf of David Bank and Imogen Rose-Smith, thanks for listening to Returns on Investment. We look forward to speaking with you again soon.